The book of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's second letter to the believers in Corinth who were being influenced by false teachers proclaiming a different gospel. As a physician cleans and bandages a wound, Paul addresses the contamination of the Corinthians' hearts and applies the healing balm of the gospel. Paul uses their real-life situations to apply gospel truths in real time. The gospel is worked into our hearts, causing us to recognize its deep implications in every dimension of life. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is working to transform our hearts, unmasking our own cultural idols, and recentering our lives around the promises of God. 2 Corinthians. So I hope you have your Bibles at the ready, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and um, we're going to do the whole uh, chapter this morning. One thing that I want to remind us of, most of you know, of course, but I, I just think it's worth reminding uh, all of us of this. I've called the series we're doing uh, the Writings of Paul, and I've mentioned to you, I've done this a couple of times, that he didn't really write anything. He did use a signature a couple of times, but that he would have what they called an amanuensis, I just called a secretary, who would be a skillful individual who could write down what Paul was saying in the Greek language. Now, <clears throat> the individual that would be doing this would really understand the language. The Greek language is different in a sense than the English language in this way. Uh, the fewer words mean more things. In other words, one word can take about five English words to get the same emotion across. And so when Paul's letters were read in the churches, the people could feel, and I talk about this a lot as we're going through it, but this is important in this particular sermon, they could feel Paul's emotion just by the, the tenses and the way that the Greek words were used. People didn't have Bibles and scrolls all around them. They had some letters that came from the apostles and others who would write back and forth. But these letters would be, written, would be read to the whole body in that area, in this case in Corinth. And they'd all come together and they would hear the letter. And I say that because it's important that we understand Paul's emotions in what he's writing because of all that's going on. And it's important because it'll help us because we feel some of the same emotions in similar but different circumstances than Paul is having here. So <clears throat> Paul has started the church in Corinth. Uh, 18 months he worked with the church, and Paul and Timothy, Silas, there were others, but there were the three main ones. And uh, many people from that uh, Greek culture had come into the church, and Paul had done a lot of teaching, and then as was his norm, he went on from there uh, to uh, go on more missionary journeys to start more churches. But when he left the church, either someone came in after, we don't know for sure, or they were already there, but one person at least who probably got together uh, other people came against Paul. And the reason they did is they wanted to take charge. They wanted to be in control. And so they made up things about Paul that really weren't true. And so as we've been studying First and Second Corinthians, and then we talked about a letter that Paul wrote that we don't have, we can see that Paul is spending a fair amount of time in handling this difficulty in the local church that he founded. 
And I think it's incredibly important that we see the emotion and uh, the contrast between Paul and those who are causing all the trouble in the church. So I would say it this way. Paul has been reluctantly defending his apostolic ministry against false teachers who have become a part of the church. They had already taught that Paul was too ugly, too poor, too persecuted to be an authentic apostle. After all, these false teachers were smooth preachers whom everyone liked, and they lived well on their incomes and were recognized for their abilities. But what they had to say about Paul was not complimentary. They said Paul had become discouraged, and he had given up, and that's why he left the Corinthian church. He was a quitter. Uh, They're saying that Paul was dishonest and devious, using deceptions to get money. They said Paul was distorting the word of God, being purposely obscure and hard to understand. These unfair accusations did not cause Paul to give up. To give up. That's why I've called the sermon, Do Not Lose Heart. We see that twice in the passage. Or don't ever quit. He didn't give up. I'm sure he got discouraged, but he didn't give up. So, the, 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 uh, in spite of the rejection, he pursued the Corinthians with true Christian love. He was suffered, even faced death. We've already read that in the Second Corinthians. And Paul says again that he is not going to give up. He's not going to lose heart. And he's writing the letter so he can say to the rest of us, don't lose heart no matter what. Now, you'll remember this from last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Paul says, not that we, he's talking about himself and Silas and, uh, and the others that are helping him, Timothy, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant. Paul has this ministry of grace. Well, the false apostles have the ministry of rules, 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 legalism, it's called. So chapter 4, verse 1, follow along in your Bibles as we read it. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we, we meaning Paul and Silas and Timothy, we, therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry. God gave it to us, he's saying. We do not lose heart. Now, the real key to Paul's perseverance was the certainty of his calling from God. That's really important. Near the end of his life, he wrote two letters to Timothy, and one of them reads this way, 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Paul writes, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, Paul was a terrorist. He was a religious terrorist. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. His unbelief was purposeful. 
The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And then he just worships. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul often just broke out in praise because he realized he was the worst of sinners in a lot of ways. Now, Paul had been called as a dispenser of grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul said, unlike so many... We do not peddle the word of God for profit. We're not in it for the money. On the contrary, in Christ, the Messiah, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. It is very dangerous to call attention to oneself in the ministry. God did not make us to be famous. I've heard, the, heard this phrase about some pastors. Oh, he's bigger than life. We can't survive such a temptation. We'll be destroyed every time. It is Jesus who is to be famous. It is Jesus we are pointing to, not the preacher. And in verse 2, Paul says, rather we have Renounce. Now, here's one of those Greek words that we need a few English words for, and that way you get the emotion of Paul. So uh, to put some English words in with it, Paul is saying rather strongly, rather we have renounced once and for all secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God, in the sight of God, everyone's conscience. They understood. Paul had taught them. They knew the word of God. They knew the Old Testament really well from his teaching. And Paul's ministry was open and obvious. Paul was bold and honest in what he had to say. The false teachers, they were the ones who were deceptive and were accusing Paul of the very deception they themselves practiced. And Paul goes on to say, because they were saying that he was so obscure, and he said, even if our gospel, the gospel is the good news about Jesus, verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled... Now, we studied this in detail last week. It is veiled to those who are perishing, who are perishing, who are purposely refusing to believe. So last week, we were reminded of the Exodus account where Moses put a veil over his face when the glory of God was visible on his face. He pointed out that this veil of unbelief was still a problem among those who read the Old Testament scriptures, preventing them from believing God. But Paul went on to say that even if the gospel is veiled, causing unbelief, 
you'll remember this from chapter 3 last week, verse 16 and 17. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil of unbelief is taken away and spiritual freedom then enters. They were perishing, he's saying, because of their unbelief. And now, look at verse 4. This is important for us to understand. It helps us to understand why a lot of people don't believe. The God, small g, of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the image of God. You see, it's with our minds that we make the decisions of life. If the enemy can cause people to think wrongly, then all of life will be wrong and we'll not be able to see the light of the gospel. If a person refuses to respond to spiritual information, then they will be unable to understand the gospel. Satan attacks their minds through philosophies and doubts and false religions so that they will not listen to the gospel, therefore being blinded to the truth. Paul was preaching the truth, and the fact that there were those who didn't believe didn't cause Paul to water down the gospel for their sakes. He understood the power of God for conversion and didn't capitulate to those who refused to believe. You see, Paul knew that the gospel in itself was powerful. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. The false teachers, on the other hand, were accusing Paul of being unclear when it came to the gospel. Now, this was a misunderstanding of the power of the Spirit of God. This is also a misunderstanding of who does the converting. Now look at verse 5. Paul says, For what we preach is not of ourselves, but Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, and who's also Lord. And ourselves, as your servants, Corinthians, remember he's writing this to a, a church, your servants, Corinthians, for Jesus' sake. John Calvin said this, He that would preach Christ alone must of necessity forget himself. Paul was not a self-promoter. He was not a quitter. And he certainly was not a deceiver. Now, the word preach means to herald the good news. It's a very interesting word. Oh, ye, oh, ye. You know, you can think, herald the good news. I grew up in part of my life in a little town in Ontario, Canada, with about nine or 10,000 people. And I remember back when I was a little boy, there would be a car go through the town with a great big, huge speaker uh, on top. It looked like a bullhorn that had grown too big for the inside of the car. It's on the roof, and then the car's going up and down all the streets in the town, and somebody's got this microphone, and they don't say, oh, hear ye, hear ye. They just say, we're announcing that in the arena tonight, the Smith Falls Bears will be meeting the Pembroke losers. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and all of the various other, other things that were going on in the town, they, would, they were heralding the good news about all that was happening in our little uh, town. Well, that's what the word herald means regarding the gospel, to tell everyone that through our relationship with Jesus, we all may have the freedom of eternal life. We're to herald that. We're to announce that 
to let people know that is true. And then in verse 6, Paul adds, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Paul is probably remembering the light that he saw on the road to Damascus when he was converted. If there's anybody that was a non-believer, he was about as strong a non-believer as you'll ever find anywhere. When the Bible talks about the glory of God, it is most often talking about the presence of God. Paul saw the glory of God on the road to Damascus. He was on a murderous, murderous, uh, going to murder people while he was going to go in and arrest people and bring them back to Jerusalem, but many of them would die. He was on a murderous mission. But Paul saw the glory of God, and we all have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining out from our clay pot lives if we're Christians. We're dust people. God made us to the dust of the earth. And we're just clay pots. It's the light that's within us that is important. We see the glory of God by seeing Jesus Christ. He is the representation of the glory of God on earth. In John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter 1, verse 14, it reads this way. The word became flesh. Now, the word here in Greek is logos, and I like to say to people it means the meaning of life. It actually, in the context, is Jesus. So the word became flesh. In other words, God so loved the world that he sent the word. He sent the logos. It's called the incarnation. It's Christmas time. God became a man. So the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the, the, the way that the language reads, you could translate it, uh, that uh, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us because he wasn't here to stay. He was here on a mission to accomplish and leave, and he'll be back again. Now, and it goes on to say, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only God so loved the word, world that he sent his one and only son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That's an amazing message. In the Genesis passage, the earth, and we've just been studying this on Wednesdays, was formless and empty, and then God said, let light shine out of darkness. Our lives are, in that sense, formless and empty, and when we ask Christ to come into our lives, the light of the gospel puts purpose and meaning into our lives. And people can tell there's a difference. Another picture from Genesis is the supernatural aspect of our salvation. God created the heavens and the earth. Christians are a new creation, just as miraculous as the creation in Genesis. You must have memorized this. I've quoted it so often by now. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 reads... Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you become a Christian, the new creation has come. You were dead spiritually, you're now alive. You were dead spiritually, you've now been recreated. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, then we have been recreated, and our old self is gone, and the new is here. We are totally a different person. The Apostle Peter says the same thing to the church. The church is the body of Christ. That's the Bible name, if you want, for church. 
So Peter is saying the same thing, only he's talking to all of us together. So this is about us this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, we are a chosen people. God chose us. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. Think about this. A holy nation. You know, the United States is a nation. Israel is a nation. Germany is a nation. All of these nations. Well, we're a nation. And we're a nation that's spread out over the whole world. And the word holy means to be set apart for God's purposes. So Peter, the apostle, says, we talk about self-image. Well, here's a good self-image. But we are all a chosen people, chosen by God, a royal priesthood, and we're a nation of people set apart for God's purposes, God's special possession. Why? That we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, Paul puts... At this point, his ministry and our lives in perspective, our temporal lives. We're not going to last forever, you know. Well, at least not this way. <laughs> Here's how Paul puts it. And I think this passage is very inspirational. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. You realize jars of clay? It's not just a singing group. It's, it's us. We are mortal, we are temporal, we're passing away. In other words, we are, as we are now, we're dispensable. So, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Paul's talking about himself and others, especially who go out and pronounce the message like he does. We're, we have it in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He loves to take fearful people and turn them into weapons of God's warfare. I sat down this morning, actually, and read through chapter 6 and 7, I believe it is, of Judges and Gideon. I love the story of Gideon. Gideon was in a, like a place where they crushed grapes and stuff, hiding and trying to thresh some grain. And God comes along, or an angel, and says, uh, well, great warrior. <laughs> and he said, me, I'm not a great warrior. And then he's told, to shorten the story up super short, he's told that he is, the Midianites were coming and causing all kinds of trouble, that he was going to lead an army against the Midianites and defeat them. And, of course, his answer to that is, you've got to be kidding. That's not going to happen, not for me. I'm just hiding here and just leave me alone. And so finally, God keeps at him, so he says, okay, here, let's just do this. I'm going to put a, some wool out here on the ground, and uh, if, if this is true, what you're saying, if you're really who you say you are, uh, then I want the, um, uh, the wool to be dry and the ground to be wet. And so that happens. I mean, how many times do we do stuff like this? Uh, maybe you don't, but... <laughs> I, have a, I write it down even, so uh, that's why Valerie has to destroy all my logbooks <laughs> after. And so it happens. So he says, okay, now wait a minute. I probably made a mistake. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to put some wool out on the ground, and if the ground's dry and the wool's wet, then I'll be fine. And so he uh, does that, uh, and uh, he's wringing the, the wet wool out. And, uh, but he doesn't stop there. I mean, God's, 
puts an army around him. He makes the army smaller and smaller. And, and there's one point, and I, I just laugh out loud when I read it, where uh, he tells this huge army that anybody that's afraid or anything, uh, they can go home. And so 20,000 of them leave. <laughs> They're going to follow this guy. But in the end, he's in the Bible. We read about him all the time. And God used him. And he wants to use us in impossible situations. You see, we are all ordinary people who represent an extraordinary God. And I might not look important or impressive. And the reason is because I'm not. We are to live our lives in such a way that those who Satan is blinded will open their eyes to the message we have because of how we live our lives. That's important. Now, here is Paul's perspective on the Christian life, starting at verse 8. He's talking about his life. Here he is. We are hard-pressed on every side. It's a picture of a, a wine press, pressing the juice out of the grapes. So we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed. Perplexed, that means like perplexed. I don't understand. Why is this happening? We're perplexed, but not in despair. The New Living Translation puts it this way. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed and broken. We are perplexed, but we don't give up and quit. And then look at verse 9, those first few words. Persecute it, persecute it, but not abandoned. The implication is that we are not abandoned by God. Paul was abandoned by people he loved, but not by God. This is really important. It's important that we don't live our Christian lives thinking that we will never be disappointed by or in other Christians. The only one who will never disappoint us is God. Psalm 27.10, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Wow. So here we are, verse 9. Persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down, probably meaning depressed but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. I was thinking about this while we were worshiping this morning. So many of the songs were saying this, the death of Jesus. It's because he died that we live. And we never, that, that's the cross. We must never forget that his blood ran red and made us white. It's not talking about, it's, it's talking about purity, meaning we're free of our sin now, of the results of our sin. God has freed us from that. So we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our clay pot bodies. Here we have a contrast between human weakness and divine enablement. Without God's intervention, the troubles Paul experienced would have broken him. We all know about the thorn in the flesh, and uh, we, find, we read about it in chapter uh, 12 of the Second Corinthians, and everybody's trying to guess what the thorn in the flesh. Well, some say, well, Paul, was, he didn't see very well. He had eye problems. Others said he had some kind of a disease that kept coming on, but he said that it was a messenger from Satan, and my guess is, and it's a guess, my guess is that it was a person somebody that was a thorn in the flesh that bothered Paul, maybe more than one somebody. And so Paul prayed, God, take this thorn away. Get rid of this person. I just I don't, can't take this anymore. Three times. 
And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 9, Paul said, but he, that is God, said to me, and I'm just going to play a little free with it here. God said to me, you know, uh, Paul, I'm not going to take away that person that's really bugging you and causing you to trouble. Why? Because my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, because God said that to me, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That's what faith looks like. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Do you delight in all those things? The Bible is a the message of the gospel is an upside-down message, especially Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word blessed in makarios in the Greek language, you could literally translate it approved of God. Approved of God? Approved of God if you're persecuted because of righteousness, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus said, not only that, but blessed are you, uh, you know, if... Uh, uh, if people uh, persecute you and insult you and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then he says, rejoice and be glad. Why well, rejoice and be glad? Yeah, rejoice and be glad. Uh, because, you know, that's the way they treated the prophets who came before you. I mean, you're inheriting the kingdom of heaven. What more could you ever want? Now, there are many ways to translate these descriptive words I've read in 2 Corinthians in this passage, here's how William Barclay wrote it. We are sore pressed at every point, but not hemmed in. We are at our wits end, but never our hopes end. We are persecuted by men, but never abandoned by God. And I like this one. We are knocked down, but not knocked out. Jesus died so we can live with him forever. This passage should take the wine, W-H-I-N-E, out of our lives. Now, I'm not going to use this in the next sermon because Valerie will be sitting here. <coughs> and don't tell her. So just as Jesus had the marks of his suffering on his body, Paul had experienced much suffering, and his body also bore the marks of persecution, but that only revealed the reality of his faith. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul simply says, For I bear in my body, he's talking that literally does bear in my body the marks of Jesus. You can, you, if you got to meet Paul, you would realize he really had a hard time. Or Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 in the New Living Translation, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Paul literally had the battle scars of persecution to prove he was a bona fide apostle, a disciple of Jesus Christ. The life of Jesus is revealed in us by how we live our lives during trials. If we are willing to suffer loss for Christ's sake, then we'll be enabled to live life for Jesus. We will not be crushed. We will not give in to despair or depression. 
We will not feel abandoned when people persecute us, but we'll not give in to the feeling because God is with us and will never abandon us. So rather than being knocked out and destroyed, we will keep getting up again and again and again while living for Jesus. Now look at verse 11. For we who are alive, so that's all of us here, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now, Paul is not suggesting that the Corinthians should suffer for him. Try to remember, he's writing this to the Corinthians and to, to defend himself in a sense. Paul is defending his apostolic calling, which includes suffering for them, and this should encourage them. This should encourage us. We are not all called to a ministry of suffering in the same way that Paul was. All Christians will suffer at some level, but for us, especially in America, that level is normally very small. Around the world today, uh, the uh, suffering of Christians and the way Paul suffered is exponentially increasing. The important point about our suffering is that it must be only for the gospel and not because of unbiblical behavior. Let God choose the point and place of suffering. But the basis of Paul's ministry of suffering is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He died for us so we can live for him. So Paul sums up what we have learned by quoting Psalm 116. Now, Psalm 116 is an amazing psalm. And I really urge you to read it if you don't immediately know the psalm. Uh, it's got eight, it has 18 verses in it. And the psalmist was facing devastating life circumstances. Death defied. He, he thought he was going to die. But it's one of the most encouraging psalms you could ever read. And Paul only mentions a few words out of what we call verse 10. But everybody reading, having this read to them would know what he's talking about. So he's saying, it is written... Psalm 116, verse 10, or part of verse 10. I believe, therefore I have spoken. That's what the psalmist said. All of these terrible things are happening to him. Nevertheless, he spoke out in belief. So Paul says, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord, whose name is Jesus, from the dead, will also raise us with Jesus and present us, now he's talking to the Corinthians, with you to himself. So we saw in chapter 1 that Paul had been in danger of his life, so much so that he did believe that he was going to die. And Paul's near-death experience caused him to push forward with renewed vigor because of his faith in the resurrection of Jesus, and therefore he looks forward to his own resurrection. And then he says in verse 15, all this is for your benefit. It's for our benefit. So that the grace, that unmerited favor, that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. 
I've seen this in our church recently. I've been rereading, I have, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 letters that I've been reading recently that I received from Daniel. Some of you will know who I'm talking about in 2004 while he was dying of cancer. And I've been rereading them. They're the most, he says in one of the letters, he said, I always used to say to you, he and I were very close, I always used to say to you, if they ever tell me I've got cancer, I'm going to say, hallelujah. And he says, so I went into the hospital, and the doctor says, I have cancer. And then he puts in brackets. He didn't mean he had cancer. He meant I had cancer. <laughs> he was always joking. And he says, and as soon as the doctor said that I have cancer, I said, hallelujah. And then he went on to explain that he really meant it. Oh, I mean, in, uh, Pastor Jim and I uh, visited Helen Baker in the hospital just this past week. Talk about inspired. Liz, her daughter's there. Uh, uh, she wrote me a text that uh, I didn't have permission to read, so I won't. I didn't ask, but uh, it, it just it made my day. And God had really, really came to her rescue in a wonderful way. Uh, about a week before uh, Kim Opperman died, just recently, Val and I were visiting in the hospital with her, and we walked out of that room. And uh, she had been through two, well, at that time, one surgery just of about 12 or 14 hours. She would just go through another surgery. She was always in church here when she could be. And uh, we just walked out of the room. And the first thing I said is, can you believe how young she looks? And she told us jokes. She was laughing. And it was very, very clear that she was ready to meet the Lord. That's what verse 15 is all about. This is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. It revived my faith. Paul is certain that the ministry of the gospel will be and is being effective, not because of any cleverness on Paul's part, but because of the power of God, the message of the gospel. It was the glory of God that kept Paul going in ministry, not the glory of Paul. Paul is trying to communicate that the Christian life is totally opposite to the life the world offers. The world wants self-glorification. The Christian's life is self-crucifixion. Most all Christians have either memorized or know Galatians 2.20, but do we really know it? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He really meant that. He, meant, he so understood the crucifixion. He so understood uh, the pain and the terror of it. He so understood the purpose of it that he says, I've been crucified with Christ. When Christ died, I died too. I don't live. But Christ lives still. He defeated death. He, Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, went to the cross for me. Therefore, verse 16, we do not lose heart. There he says it again. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yep, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles. Now, some of you know I love this verse. I like this. For our light and momentary troubles. I love the phrase momentary troubles. So whatever troubles you're in right now, they're only momentary. They can only last for the rest of your life. <laughs> and then they're gone. 
And so he says, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Romans 8.18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that were revealed in us. It's a ridiculous comparison. We have so much to look forward to. So verse 18 says, so we fix our eyes this is what we stare at in the sense this is what our life is all about. Not in what is seen, but what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. John Calvin said this, It is necessary that the condition of the present life should decay in order that the inward man may be in a flourishing state. And Spurgeon once said, this is my favorite Spurgeon quote, The greatest gift God can give a man is perfect health except for sickness. Now, Spurgeon suffered illness almost his entire life, but he accomplished more in ill health than almost anyone has accomplished since the days of the Apostle Paul. I have seen far more witness for Jesus come out of those who remain faithful in failing health than the majority of us who are in good health. Today, we're obsessed as a society with being young and strong and healthy. We seem to be looking for the spring of eternal youth. What Paul is saying here is that we live in a temporary tent at this present time, but someday we're going to live in a palace. In chapter 5, verse 1, last verse, for we know, Paul says, that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So don't waste too much time fixing up the temporary tent. Instead, spend much more time preparing for the new beyond bionic bodies we receive when Jesus comes again. Now, since most of you know a fair amount about me, you know that I spend significant time exercising. And I try to continue to learn more and more about nutrition because I believe my body is the temporary temple of the Holy Spirit. But someone wrote this that really challenges me. To consider health more important than holiness is to slight God himself and his work in bringing about the new creation in our midst. Now, that's not an excuse for not taking care of ourselves, but it sure does make one think. So the question I have here is, am I looking intently at the temporary or deeply desiring the eternal? I'm going to end with a story. Apologize for going a little bit of overtime here, but um, this story really moved me. Uh, it's from a sermon in 1979 that Ray Steadman preached. And as I listened to it, I was just moved by it. It comes from a book called World of Flame by Billy Graham, which was written in 1965, still worth reading. And here's the story out of the book. It doesn't, it, the book particularly doesn't let you know who this is. For a long time, I have been bitter about life. It seemed to have dealt me a dirty blow, for since I was 12 years old, I have been waiting for death to close in on me. It was at that time I learned I had muscular dystrophy. I fought hard against this disease and exercised hard, but to no avail. I only grew weaker. 
All I could see was that I had what I had missed. My friends went away to college, then got married, and started having families of their own. And when I lay in bed at night thinking, despair would creep from the dark corners to haunt me. Life was meaningless. In March of last year, my mother brought home from our public library Billy Graham's book, World of Flame. I started reading it, and as I read, I realized that I wanted God. I wanted there to be a meaning to life. I wanted to receive this deep faith and peace. All I know is that now my life has changed, and now I have joy in living. No longer is the universe chaotic. No longer does life have no goal. No longer is there no hope. There is instead God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I continue to grow weaker. I am close to being totally helpless, and I'm in pain most of the time. But sometimes I'm so glad I'm alive that it's hard to keep myself from bursting at the seams. I can see for the first time the beauty all around me, and I realize how blessed I am. Despair is such a waste of time when there is joy, and lack of faith is such a waste of time when there is God. So, question. Am I allowing my present-day troubles and fears to discourage me and cause me to retreat into myself and forget about others? Psalm 90 in verse 12 reads, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. On my bike rides, I pray through the Lord's Prayer right at the beginning of all my bike rides. And I can just, you know... Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I pray through it in every phrase. But the phrase I like the most in a way is the phrase that says, it's Luke eleven three. give us each day our daily bread. I put the word me into it. And I say, God, give me today everything I need to live for you. So final statement. I've lived by this for decades now. It is never too late to start over and get it right. Never. Let's pray. Stand with me as we pray and worship again. Father, help all of us to let that light really shine. We know that we are in these clay bodies, and we know that they're failing no matter how much we exercise or run or bike or eat, all of that. Now, Father, you've given us all the ability to take care of ourselves, but you are taking care of us, the real us that really counts. And therefore, whatever comes into our life comes through your hands first. Help us to be that light that shines through our lives, both when we suffer and then when we have the temptation of huge success. Both are dangerous enemies. So help us to live for you. And if there are any among us here today who have sort of given up on all that. I pray that today they'd start over again. It's never too late to start over. And we can start over again and again and again. And you'll strengthen us more and more each time. And I pray if there's anyone here, Father, that has never given their life to Jesus or anyone online that hasn't done that, don't wait. Do it now. Just say, Dear Father God, I believe Jesus is God that he died for my sins, that he rose from the dead. Please save me. And if we just simply pray that and we really mean it, like whoever that person was in the story we read at the end, you will come into our lives and you will give us the joy 
that his heart and the peace and joy that has passes all human understanding. In Jesus' name I pray.